1: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
2: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen, of course, live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. And uh, it really is the best of the best today. Uh, Coming up on the podcast today, yes, we've got Rishi Sunak. But we've also got Harry Hill as well. wishy I and Harry Hill, both natty dressers, uh, if nothing else. Uh, so that's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Friday, it's Formel, It's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth,
3: the columnists with Formel. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio.
2: Yes, as usual on a Friday morning, we speak to our two favourite columnists, Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you uh, with us. Uh, then we've also got James. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Big, bit hot and bothered. What with the weather and whatnots. But um, you know, we're all right. We're all
3: right. Are you pro heat or anti heat?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I used to like the heat, and now I've had enough heat. I'm, yeah, cake, and cake, heat and eat it, or something. Uh, um, James, let's talk about your column today because you've sort of zeroed in on. On Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, one of my favourite moments of the week was Nicola Sturgeon um, hitting back at Liz Truss, Liz Truss calling her an attention seeker, and Nicola Sturgeon revealing that the one time she spoke to Liz Truss, she asked how she could get her into vogue. Um, <laughs> uh, and, but once again, it, it puts us, which as a, the attention seeking quotes, Tory MPs have told me from both camps, have said that that's gone down like an absolute cup of warm sick in Scotland. Um, but your, your point is that they actually uh, Nicola Sturgeon. You know, they both candidates need to be focusing on her and try to keep the union together.
3: Yeah, because I mean, everyone's You, you. I think we are about to see when the Supreme Court hears the case on the legality or otherwise of of the uh, Scottish government's attempt to hold a second uh, independence referendum. It's going to push independence right back up the agenda. And I still think that one of the other points that, 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 that we can too often forget in Westminster is that, you know, post 2014, the nationalists start within striking distance in any second campaign. Uh, and therefore, you know, it, it, the union is, is is at greater risk than it was before. Now, I, I think there are some kind of lessons in terms of how you deal with Nicholas Sturgeon that you, that, 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 that you can actually kind of learn from where Boris Johnson got to by the end of his premiership and I think one of them is you know they are more riled by cooperation than confrontation uh, and the, the great advantage that the Westminster government has over the Scottish government is but the, the Scottish nationalists inherently don't want devolution to work whereas the Westminster government can want it to work and I think if you look at the Scottish electorate what those crucial voters who are going to decide any second independence referendum want is they want to see these, the two governments working together. And so I think, that, you know, the UK government should always aim to be the reasonable one doing that. And then the other thing that the UK government should be doing is don't get into a, a, a definition of what's a generation or not, or say you can never have another referendum. Just emphasise, and I think particularly will be true this October. But you know, This is a weird priority at this moment in time. The whole of the continent of Europe is about to be plunged into a crisis by Vladimir Putin's use of the energy weapon. I don't see how you can possibly argue that independence would solve that problem and emphasise that it's an odd priority right now. Now is not the time. It's a much better argument than never.
2: Um, Many, you are in Scotland, so you can give us a, a, a perspective from from there. What, what did you make of of James's argument in, in his column today, and, uh, and the and the approach, or otherwise, from the two two major candidates towards Nicola Sturgeon and Scotland?
4: It, it, James is absolutely right. You have to box very, very Westminster has to box very, very clever with Scotland. Uh, the SNP, you know, they, they, they're masters at, at, at guerrilla warfare. They're very, very clever and crafty um and anything that that westminster does they they will turn to to to, to you know to turn it into that that s- the age old s m p um uh, grievance narrative uh you know the westminster disrespects us and tramples on us and bullies us and ignores us and uh and that is you know that's what keeps, uh, keeps the keeps independence voters uh uh geared up um i i, I think it, Nicola Sturgeon's position is both strong and not strong. You know, she has an undoubted electoral mandate to rule. She's, the, the, you know, the SNP have controlled the, the Scottish Parliament since 2007, um, uh, but it's not strong in the sense that she has not. She didn't manage to get a, a majority in the last the last time round, and the polls are still extraordinarily close. I mean, the, the I, I think there's been a while since the, the last poll, but they move, they shift, they move anything between sort of 47%, 53%. Um, there hasn't been any sort of recently any big series of polls over the 50%. And the argument has always been that, you know, if you want to go for a referendum and you want to win it in a clear way, um, you need at least 60%. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're foolish unless came, you
2: wait. But I suppose point, James' point is they came from a long way behind last time. If they pulled off the same trick again, then... Uh, that would be easier. James, the other thing the other thing yeah. I think sometimes, and this definitely was, came through with that joke from Liz Truss saying that Nicola Sturgeon was an attention seeker could be ignored. You can't ignore her because whether you agree with her or not, Nicola Sturgeon is, is a well, she's long-serving politician. She's also very, very good at politics. And actually, you could argue better at politics than either of the two people currently running to be prime minister.
3: Well, you look, you have to respect someone who's now now onto their is what is going to be onto their fourth prime minister, right? <laughs> that, that is no small achievement, and I think you saw in that interview she did with, with Ian Dale uh, at, the, at the Edinburgh Festival that you know she will return any 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 insult with interest, um, and, and so don't get into that kind of argument with her. Uh, mm. it, it, it's not going to end well. I think it is much better to all, but I think actually uh, Melanie made the point you know, that there actually are uncanny similarities between the SNP and the Tories at the moment. You know, they've been in power for a long time. And when parties have been in power for generally more than a decade, they find it hard to come up with new ideas and they find it hard to shake off scandals. Uh, I mean, they're they're undercovered in in, in the London press. But, you know, the SNP have been hit by a series of scandals that are not entirely dissimilar to the ones that the Tories have been hit by in, in, in recent months. And so I think if you can find a way to look like the reasonable ones, then I think that makes things more difficult for the SNP. And as, and as Melanie said, you know, N- Nicola Sturgeon, in some ways, if the Supreme Court tells her she can have this referendum because it, it, it has absolutely no legal relevance at all, she'll be forced in, in October 2023, which will still be a time when energy prices are very high, a very difficult time for people, she'll be forced to go through with a referendum. But I suspect that most unionists in Scotland will simply boycott. Yeah, And I mean, that will, and, uh, that will leave her looking a bit
4: absurd. And the implication, too, is that if it's an unofficial referendum, it'll be regarded, you know, like the Catalan one, and there will be an absolute boycott of... Uh, the, the unionists will boycott it totally. They, she also runs the risk of alienating the European Union. You know, she wants to get back in the EU. Um, the EU weren't terribly happy That's with a very the good Catalan. Point,
2: the Catalan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, mm. She needs to avoid those comparisons.
4: Um, Absolutely. Let's
2: move on um, and talk about the... Uh, <laughs> if she's the woman of the moment, the man of the last moment. Uh, Boris Johnson is taking le- he's calling the lawyers. Boris Johnson, he's taking legal advice now over the privilege committee investigation, as though close to him accept it as a foregone conclusion that we found in contempt of parliament. Liz Truss has said that she'd try and uh, get it voted out so that he wouldn't even uh, face it. It's a slightly undignified end to it all, isn't it, James?
3: Yeah. I, I, look, I think the, I think the the the, the problem is that what Boris Johnson will need to explain to the committee is if, if you inadvertently mislead the House, you're meant to correct the record at the first available opportunity. And I think mean, what he would need to explain is, is why that didn't happen. Now, I think, to be fair to him, you can argue that it was complicated by the fact that, you know, if he had come and sought to correct the record at the first available opportunity, you know, people would have said that he was prejudging the Sue Gray report, but, you know, he was, he was making it too difficult for her to do her work. But I think he needs to explain that more clearly. I think he has also not been helped, frankly, uh, by... Um, Nadine Doris and people like that launching all these kind of full-throated attacks on the committee. I think mean, this is, this, this I, I think if, if, if when, Bernard Jenkins is normally a, a relatively mild man um, man, but when he is complaining about terrorist tactics um, I think I think it suggests that it, that it has backfired. It would have been I think it would have been much better to have had a uh, as with so many of the problems that Boris Johnson got into in the final uh, months of his premiership, you know, a bit of contrition and, con- and, a, and a more conciliatory tone and things might have turned out very differently.
4: Melanie, what, what do you want to do? You I find it very funny. I mean, <laughs> you know, from a distance, it's, it's, you know, great narcissists don't want to lose the stage, do they? They just, they just really don't want to go.
2: Maybe we need is for the FBI to go into, go into number 10 and start oh. looking for bits of paper that he's got to try and prove that would be the perfect, the perfect parallel. Uh, uh, it with, is extraordinary
4: um, parallel, isn't it? I mean, he's so Trumpian, in, in a very sort of mild British way. In a sort of mild but...
2: <laughs> sort of tribute act, rather than um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, rather than yes. full-throated, full-throated. Totally. Yeah,
4: no, is totally. isn't there another irony in that? You know, he's desperately he trying to save his seat, um, but isn't he almost definitely going to lose it at the next election? I mean, it's. Who, it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that,
2: yeah, that, yeah. There's, there's an argument for saying, well, why doesn't he just go. Before that, but then, you know, he would trigger a by-election, they'd lose the seat, that probably wouldn't do his his popularity amongst Tory party members much good, given that. But it, most of these hustings, James, the biggest round of applause seemed to have been for mentions of Boris Johnson.
3: Yeah, look, there there is clearly somewhere between, depending on which which poll you want to use, somewhere between a third and a half of Tory members who who wish he was still there and i think that is going to be problematic for whoever succeeds him because people will start saying well well where is he you know what what about having him back because you know the, 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 i think one of the things that we 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 aren't quite grasping yet because it is almost beyond our comprehension is just how difficult and hard this winter is going to be
2: yeah, and that's that's coming down the, the, the track. And
3: I think that we don't quite realise how interconnected all, all these crises are, you, know, you, you 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 have energy bills coming in at over four thousand pounds for the average household. You know, there are a huge number of pensioners who will respond to that by turning the heat in their house right down. That is inadvertently going to lead to more pressure on the NHS as more people get chest infections, more people get sick from 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 the cold, and that's going to put more pressure on the NHS, which you know if you look at the stats that came out yesterday and you know if you asked a proverbial visitor from Mars what month of the year they were for, they would assume that they were for a really bad February, They're actually for a very sunny July. and I think this is the kind of the way in which everything is serving to make everything else worse. Is, I think, the thing that we we, 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 we haven't all quite clocked on to yet.
2: Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it on that upbeat, cheery note, James. thank uh, <laughs> <liking> you that. <laughs>
3: Enjoy, Enjoy your the
1: weekend. lovely weather today.
2: <laughs> <laughs> James for and Melanie read then, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday. You can read me in the Times on a Saturday as well, um, if you want to. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Rishi Sunak.
1: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're
2: listening to the Red Box Podcast now. Clearly, the Tory uh, leadership contest is is rolling on. We've been trying to get the contenders on for ages. We finally got one of them. This is what happened when I spoke to Rishi Sunak.
3: The big thing on Times Radio.
2: Yeah, so Tory leadership contender Rishi Sunak has unveiled a three-part plan to ease the pain of soaring energy bills. Writing in The Times today, he's promising to provide the support required to the people who need it. Well, what does all that mean in practice? We can find out right now here on Times Radio. I'm joined live by the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. Good morning.
5: Hi, Matt. It's Rishi. Can you hear me? I
2: can hear you. I can hear you loud and clear. You slightly panicked me there. There was a short gap, but we've got you. That's good news. That's good news. Uh, We'll come on to energy bills in a moment, but clearly your most recent job as chance of the Exchequer was to oversee the economy. The latest GDP figures out today show the economy shrank by 0.1%. The Bank of England says it's only going to get worse over the next year. Is this the start of your recession?
5: Well, it's pretty clear that the numbers show that inflation is the clear and present danger to the economy. That's what I've been saying for weeks. And it's why that the next Prime Minister needs to have a plan to grip inflation and should make it the number one priority. That's what I've been saying for a while. These numbers demonstrate that that's the case. So it's important that we support people this winter with energy bills in particular, because we know it's going to be really tough. And I've just been writing in uh, in your paper about exactly my plans to do that. And then we need to have a a good plan to grow the economy where my tax reforms this autumn will get businesses investing in and innovating because that's how you grow the economy in the long run. That's the right plan. And pursuing policies that will make inflation worse and last longer, I don't think are the right thing for the country. And that's what I'm talking to people about
2: everywhere I go. But you were, the, these, these figures, the economy shrank in the three months to June. You were Chancellor then. Liz Truss says she's got the policies to stop a recession. Why didn't your policies stop the economy shrinking in your last three months as Chancellor?
5: Well, because we're suffering from inflation, as are many countries around the world. And I'm sure you'll, you'll be talking to the, the Chancellor himself about these figures as well. But all I can say is I have been saying for a while that inflation is the danger to the economy. Now, a good chunk of that has come from the result of global energy prices. But the thing we need to now do is look forward. Inflation is forecast to get a lot worse. And I don't think it's sensible in that environment to pump 50 billion pounds worth of borrowed money into the economy, because that's a big gamble with people's mortgage rates, their savings, their pensions. Inflation could get even worse and last longer. I don't want to do that. I want to help people with the cost of living, particularly those who really need our help over what is going to be a difficult autumn and winter, and then do sensible tax reform that is going to make sure that businesses invest more, innovate more. That's what my radical tax plans do, because I know my experience in business, my time as chancellor, has told me that that is the way that we are going to drive up growth and productivity in this country, because that's what we all want to see. That's how we're going to reduce inflation. That's how we're going to create jobs that pay people well. And my plan is the right one to do that.
2: Uh, Let's talk about your plan then today on your cost of living plan. You write in the times uh, that you would uh, do more to help with rising energy bills. The main concrete promise is to cut VAT from bills worth £200 to every household, to every household, which means everyone will get it. I mean, bluntly honestly i don't need 200 pounds you don't need 200 pounds why are you and i going to get 200 pounds when some people in this country can't afford to heat their own dinner because the
5: vast majority of people matt are going to need some help because the bills are going up at such a rate that many people even in decent jobs with a decent wage, are going to feel the pinch. And I think it's right that everyone gets some support. And it's, it's very hard to find ways to do that quickly and efficiently to the, benefit the vast majority of people whilst excluding a few people at the top, which if it was possible to do, of course I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to do that. But you've got to deal with what is practical in government, and that is a good lever that we can pull that gets lots of support to lots of people quickly. But on top of that, you are right. There are two groups of other people who will need more help people on very low incomes and pensioners. Now, Liz Truss's tax plans do virtually nothing uh, for those people and I don't think that's right because they will need direct financial support. They don't have an easy way of increasing their incomes. They're gonna face a really difficult winter and the compassionate conservative thing to do is to provide those people with direct assistance and that's what I will do as prime minister. I announced some as chancellor and as prime minister I would go further because the situation is worse than we thought. That's the right thing to do.
2: Uh, we asked listeners to send in questions. We had a lot of clearly, as you imagine, lots of questions on this on this topic. One listener, Ben, uh, made exactly this point about why are well-off people getting this support? He asked, is there not a mechanism for people to be able to give it back to to um, to to say, well, I don't need this support and I know that other people do. Is that something that the government's capable of that you would consider doing?
5: No, look, every, everyone will be able to make their own decisions. And I'm sure if they want to give that money to charity, they, they're more than welcome to do so. But then everyone yours, else is asking. Would
2: you give your £200 I, I already,
5: said, I already, I already said I already said, Matt, that I would do that. And th- the thing is, though, we, we tried a version of it earlier in the year where we tried to use the council tax system to get help to the vast majority of people that not people who were in the most wealthy households. And actually, when we did that, what do we do? We heard a lot from all the people who were just the other side of the line who said, hang on, I might be living in a, in a big house, but actually I'm not earning a lot of money and I do need help. And what are you going to do for me? So it's hard to get these things perfectly right. But when you've got a situation of this scale where the vast majority of people do need some help then you have to pull this lever. And I'm not going to make any apologies about that because actually having been in government, you have to focus on what works. And if I become prime minister at the beginning of September, bills are going to go up just a few weeks after that. I want to make sure that I can do something that provides immediate help to millions and millions of families. And that is one of the very few, if not only, levers available. I'm not going to pretend it's perfect. Of course it's not. But that is the best thing to do. I'm very happy if someone's got an alternative that I haven't thought of. They're more than welcome to let me know. But having looked at all the options, I know that that is the best one, combined with extra help for the most vulnerable people, whether it's pensioners or those on low income. And we have established mechanisms for doing that. And as Chancellor, as I said, I said I would use those. And as Prime Minister, I will go further, because those are the people
2: who are going to most need help this winter. You've said previously in the campaign that the answer to too much borrowing isn't more borrowing. Uh, saying it was irresponsible for his trust to promise that. How are you going to pay for this additional help uh, for bills that you set out at the Times today?
5: Well, as, as I set as, as I out there, right, there's a, the first thing to do is to recognise that this is the number one priority of government at the moment and we should look very hard at all other areas of public spending to find efficiencies. Now, I've proven that I can do that. As chancellor, I went and found over a billion pounds to send to Ukraine just recently when we wanted to continue supporting yeah, their you going their to pay for efforts. this? How are you, you going to pay for this money, bill's support? Well, but I'm just saying, well, that's what I'm saying. I, when, when we need to, I've demonstrated an ability to, to find savings and efficiencies across government spending to fund things of this type of magnitude. Beyond that, as chancellor, I introduced something called the energy profits levy, because I didn't think it was right that because of a war energy companies were going to make considerably excessive profits I didn't think that was fair and so in these exceptional circumstances I introduced a new levy on those profits and we can use that money to help reduce people's bills I think that is a reasonable and fair thing to do in these exceptional times you spent and that money you've already spent
2: that, that money I'm talking about the no, no new, but, but the Matt, but because
5: because well but Matt, because because prices because we're now dealing with a situation that is worse than we thought because no, no, prices no, no, are higher that, than we but thought. You, you introduced high, the windfall tax to
2: pay for the last massive amount uh, of spending. I'm asking about this uh, Matt, new Matt, ten Matt, billion Matt, pounds.
5: Right, right. So what's happened since then, Matt, is that revenue, that levy is almost certainly likely to raise more money because the situation is worse with energy prices and they're higher. So that levy will automatically raise more money, which we can use, and that was why I did it because it means that if this war carries on, if prices are higher, then as those excessive profits are being made, the government will be able to recoup those and more of those as prices rise and use those to defray people's bills. I think that's the right thing to do and I think Liz Truss last night said she opposed doing that and actually didn't believe in that policy. So I think that's a question for her to answer. I think that's the fair thing to do. So it's easy for me to say, yes, I can have the money to pay for these things because I put in place a mechanism that actually raises money from the energy companies to do so.
2: You talk about how you can find savings from public services. I think that will surprise lots of people listening to this. Do you think that after 12 years of Conservative government, there's money being wasted somewhere in public services in fact during the campaign you've said that you don't think the nhs is working properly the welfare system isn't working properly the immigration system isn't working properly regional development isn't working properly the economy is heading for a recession uh, we, uh, and we're struggling to find the money to help people right now um, why is it that after 12 years of conservative government we're in this situation where far from being able to find money from public services the public services are on their knees in this country Look, well, my, my plan is to start reforming them. Right? But and that's why
5: I've fault? set out a plan, who's whether it's on NHS. Well, whose
2: fault is it? After 12 years you've been in the cabinet for two years. Whose fault is it that the Coventry's public services are on their knees now?
5: Right, so look, yes, I I have been in the cabinet for the last two years. I was chancellor during the biggest economic shock that this country had faced in 300 years. And I'm really proud of my record of ensuring that our economy and jobs and businesses were carried through it and remained resilient in the face of that shock. That's my track record as chancellor, stewarding our economy through some incredibly challenging times. But look, I'm looking at the future. Right, And what people need to know now is if this guy's Prime Minister, what is he going to do? Mm. Well, I tell you, I've got a plan to reform the NHS, to do things boldly and differently, for example, tackling this issue of missed appointments, because that is a sensible reforming thing to do, which means we'll get more productivity and health care out of the NHS without putting more money in. But when it comes to she, illegal migration, I've stop, set out a very clear, clear NHS, 10-point me, plan let me, let me, that will hopefully tackle that.
2: Let's just focus on the NHS. The problem with the NHS isn't people missing appointments. It's too many people turning up uh, sick and needing... Help you, you you know you expelled expended uh, a lot of political capital introducing the NHS levy last year, the increase in in national insurance, and yet today we've got figures, and this was supposed to be clearing up the backlogs in the NHS. A thousand patients a day are having to wait at least twelve hours in A and E. What happened to all that money? What happened to that plan that we only had six months ago?
5: Yeah, well, so I'm interested in reforming the NHS because. It's all very well putting the money in, and that's right. And it was right to support the NHS to recover from a pandemic and to work our way through the backlogs. But that's not sufficient. You need someone who's going to actually be prepared to actually reform things, to change them, because we can't constantly keep putting more money in. We've actually got to be more efficient with public services. That's what my plan does. And I completely disagree with you that the issue is not missed appointments. 15 million appointments every year are missed. And that is not only not valuing our doctors properly, it's depriving many people of the care that they desperately and urgently need. Now, if we can change culture, this is not about making money from fines, this is about changing the culture where that becomes much less acceptable, because if people cancel those appointments in advance, it frees up much more of doctors' time to treat more people faster. It, we're going to get the backlogs down quicker, more people are going to get the care they need, and we won't have spent another penny because we're already paying for all that time. So, that's an example of something that's different, something that's bold, that could make a huge difference to the quality of the healthcare that we're going to get out of the NHS. So, actually, that's just one example of one of the things I want to do, but I want to bring that kind of bold approach, radical approach to reforming public services, tackling these challenges that you rightly identified. That's what I want to do as Prime Minister. That's why I'm in this race.
2: Uh, let's talk about one of the things that everyone in the country is talking about right now the heat wave the drought that's happening there's a hose pipe ban introduced in in your part of the world in yorkshire where you're an mp How, how's that going to affect you uh, are you, are you are you gardening how's how's the swimming well, pool well,
5: uh, I'm, I'm 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 spent i'm spending virtually no time at home because i'm out on a campaign so if you think about what i'm doing i mean where am i today i started the day in in oxfordshire and henley now i'm in windsor and maidenhead then I'm going to, to Lip. then I'm in West London, uh, then I'm in Wimbledon, and then I'm all the way down in Chichester. So that's where I'm spending my days. That's what a campaign is about. I'm yeah. out and about. But look, I, obviously this drought is, is very serious. I know the Environment Agency is working with farmers in particular that I, I care about. I have lots of farmers in, near my own home who will be concerned about all these things. And it actually shines a light on what we need to do, which is make sure our water companies are fulfilling all their obligations to us in correcting leaks. Because what's not acceptable is if we have an enormous amount of water wasted through leakage and indeed polluting our rivers, that's just not right. And we need to make sure we have a regulatory regime and a set of laws, which we've recently passed in parliament, that can mean that we can properly hold those water companies to account, find them, when they're not doing the right thing. And that hasn't happened clearly sufficiently in the past. The new powers allow us to do that. And I, I want to make
2: sure as Prime Minister we, that we use them to fix this problem. Do you think we all need to change how we use water as well? Because everyone gets, becomes an expert in saving water when there's a drought like this. But sort of around the year, do we need to change the way we use water, to use less water?
5: Well, I think actually we're, we're, we're losing, as I understand it, huge amounts of water through leakage. And actually if we can fix that, that's why I was talking about the water companies doing the right things about investing in infrastructure, stopping unnecessary, unpreventable, or preventable rather, leaks, then that would be a really good thing. And we need to make sure that we hold them account to doing that, but also at the same time making sure that our rivers are not being polluted with sewage that's uh, being released from all these pipes. So, as I said, we've got a new set of powers that allow us to find them and hold them to account for doing that. As Prime Minister, I'd want to use them to improve the situation.
2: Uh, I want to ask you about Brexit. I've got a lot of things I want to get through. You've said in your campaign that you would keep Brexit safe. Would Brexit be unsafe under a Remainer like Liz Truss?
5: Look, I'm just going to talk about what I'm going to do. As I said, I was proud to, to vote for Brexit and I believe that we can make an enormous success of it. And as Chancellor, I demonstrated that, right? Because you've got to do things differently. So I came up with the idea for Freeports, which are it's special zones around the country that attract jobs and investment, which we couldn't do properly inside the EU. I came up with that idea as a backbench MP and as a Chancellor, I've delivered it. And it's working when it comes to financial services, which is part of my own professional background. I was about to introduce a bill in Parliament working with my colleague John Glenn, who's been a superb minister, where we were going to radically reform all our financial services regulation to make sure that the UK remains the most competitive, dynamic place for financial services anywhere in the world. And what I want to see is that same radicalism across government. Right. So whether it's in clinical trials and life sciences and data and AI and agri tech, there's an enormous amount of opportunity out there for us to create the innovation economy that we need to drive growth in today's age uh, if we're going to be prepared to be bold about it. And what I did as chancellor in my department, I want to replicate across government because that's how we're going to make a big success of this.
2: Um, on a specific, Niall uh, sent in a message. Want to know what you're going to do about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Because this row has gone on and on and on for six years. If we are outside the EU and outside the single market and outside the customs union, there has to be a border somewhere. And if we're committed to the Good Friday Agreement, that border can't be between Britain and Northern Ireland. So doesn't it then have to be between, sorry, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Doesn't the border then have to be between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK? What What is your plan to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol?
5: Well look, quite simply at the moment the economy of Northern Ireland is being pulled out of the orbit of the rest of the economy of the United Kingdom and that's wrong. Uh, whether your grandmother trying to send a birthday present uh, to your granddaughter in Northern Ireland, whether you're trying to take your pet on holiday, whether you're a supermarket trying to sell your, super, your sandwiches in all parts of the United Kingdom, you know these things shouldn't be that difficult. They don't infringe on the integrity of the single market and we need to fix them. So the bill that's in Parliament is one that I support that will address them, uh, but it will take time. So I hope as a new Prime Minister I can also sit down and have a constructive relationship with both the Irish, uh, French and European uh, governments to make sure that we can try and see if we can find a constructive solution to this problem. Not least because it would mean we could solve it far faster than the time it takes the bill to get through Parliament. But people should be in no doubt. It's wrong what is happening. The Northern Ireland economy should, of course, be an integral part of the UK economy. It shouldn't be sucked out, and I will make sure that that doesn't happen as PM.
2: Uh, I want to ask you some some a bit about uh, uh, the campaign and how it's going. Um, is are you really still in this? This is not already a foregone conclusion. All the polls suggest that Liz Truss is miles ahead. Why are you why are you traipsing around going to? What was it, I lost count actually the number of places you're going today. Why are you still still traipsing around the country doing this? because
5: I'm fighting passionately for the things that I believe are best for this country and the reception I'm getting everywhere I go is positive, people are responding well and I, I think I've got you know, an, a fantastic chance to make progress in this campaign. And, and all the polls don't say that actually, Matt. There was a poll of councillors uh, the other day and there have hardly been any polls to be honest, but there was a poll of councillors which showed it was completely evenly split. Uh, between me and Liz Truss and people who don't know, and that's the point. Actually, you've probably seen some of these hustings. You, know, you ask people how, who's made up their mind. Lots of people have not made up their mind. So you know, I'm going to go out and fight very hard for every vote. I'm giving it everything I've got, as you can see, across the country. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to do that till the last day of this campaign.
2: I've been watching a lot of the hustings. I know you've said you'd take a job in uh, Liz Truss's cabinet were it to go the other way. I'm quite intrigued as to why. You've said that her plans are not morally the right thing to do. How could you possibly serve in her cabinet Um, or or even vote through her plans if if you don't think they're morally the right thing to do?
5: Yeah, well, look, I I mean, all this focus on jobs and all the rest of it is not really what I think anyone is focused on, right? What they're focused on is that, what are you going to do for the country? And I've been very clear about what I want to do for the country. I think it is important that we get a grip of inflation. I think it's important that we help the most vulnerable people through what is going to be a difficult autumn and winter. And I think it's important that we have someone who can get to grips with the challenges we face on things like the NHS and tackling illegal migration and making sure that our economy and education system is fit for the future. Now, I'm really excited about delivering that vision. I want us to build an economy that is incredibly dynamic, where our young people have access to all the opportunities and skills they need. And your education commission did a superb job at highlighting some of the changes we need to make, actually, that I'd love to have a chance to put into practice, whether it's looking at curriculum reform at 18, to broaden it out, whether it's looking at more technical education in partnership with businesses for young people and adults. Those are all things that I want to get on and deliver that will help us build a better country. And critically for our members as well, right, it's important to think, well, who, who can go and beat Keir Starmer in the next election? I'm confident that I'm the person who can appeal to swing voters everywhere and deliver that election victory for the Conservative Party.
2: Richard, I know we're very, very, very short on time. You've very kindly said you're going to do the quiz. One last question I want to ask you about. Uh, You gave the Conservative MP Mark Fletcher £5,000 to pay for a constituency dinner. He's repaid your your generosity by backing Liz Truss. Are you annoyed about that?
5: No, not at all. It's because I, I had to cancel at the last minute an event that I'd, I'd promised I would, do, I would do for him. And people had paid for that. And I didn't think I was right. And I wanted to make sure that those people were not out of pocket because they had come to speak to me and I couldn't be there. And I felt an obligation to make good on that uh, promise. So, and that was my way of doing it because it was, you know, I've, I've never really <laughs> had to ever cancel something like that. But it was, I think it was the day that I had uh, nice sadly left government and resigned. So you, I just was, wanted to make sure busy. that those people were not out of pocket.
2: That was Wishy Soon Act. Now, this is my chat with Harry Hill. Matt Jolly on Times Radio, now joined by, why well, don't we know, you know what? Comedian, playwright, artist, <laughs> author. <laughs> yeah. Where do we begin? Yes. Harry Hill, welcome to Times Radio.
6: Yeah. World well, famous Pratt. Um, well, thank you very much. Yes. And. Uh, what a pleasure it is to talk to you, Matt.
2: So, where, what where am we, I? Yes, where what, should we start? Where, where should, what should we start with which which bit of your your um, uh, existence? Uh, do we want to start? Let's let's talk about art. You've been talking about art this week. You've been launching public art across London. Tell us what you've been
6: doing. Yeah, well, I'm involved with uh, uh, art for London, uh, art of London. I keep saying art for London. Actually, art for London is a much better name for it. Art of London: Brighter Future, which is a public exhibition. In London's fashionable West End, so I they got me involved in um, choosing some. I mean, a crazy idea to get me involved in choosing some of the artists. There was a panel of judges of which I was one. So we've got uh, Sam Williams, Fiona Quadri, and Zara Hussein, three up and coming artists who got this fantastic opportunity to um, to have some of their art in these iconic places. So. Piccadilly Circus, St James's churchyard, St James's Market, and then there are other places coming up along the line. And explain what we're doing. radio and
2: we're doing visual art, but um explain <laughs> it, if you can what you've what you've chosen, why you've chosen, what it looks like. Yeah, the other incentive
6: was that they they said they'd include some of my artwork as well. You know, I'm a hobby artist. I'm an amateur artist myself. So I uh I have done these uh aliens, these green aliens which are which you can bump into along the way. And if you um, they have a QR code, which you can scan on your smartphone and a little alien will appear and through the other, you know, the proper artists work. So, um, so Fiona Quadri, I mean, it's difficult to describe them on the radio, isn't it? They're kind of brightly coloured. She, she uses a kind of odd backward writing in it. Um, there's Sam Williams, which is uh, it's a kind of a theme parky type feel. So they're kind of interactive. You can. Kind of climb all over them, and then uh, Zara Hussein. She's uh, an Islamic. She did an MA in Islamic art, and so there's a kind of it's a, a kind of repetitive pattern based on Islamic art, which is uh, well, it's it's brightly coloured. It's
2: <laughs> it's brightly really of... If you came along it in the street, you'd think, oh, <laughs> what's that? I want to go and look at it. And so, uh, see so all about. Well, I think
6: you're... that is a big. I mean, joking apart, I think that is a big part of public art. Is that you know you can be on your way to the office uh, and just walk past something and think oh that's nice and hopefully we'll just you know put a spring in your step, a smile on your face uh, at the very least and who knows it might even make you think oh yeah I could do that go home and pick up a paintbrush or a chisel and and start um doing your own stuff.
1: And you,
2: you I mean you, you'd say that you're an hour to hour. you're doing yourself down a bit Harry I mean I, I've definitely <laughs> seen you on you've been on Grayson's Art Club that's a proper. Well anyone
6: can get on that anyone can get on Grayson's
2: Art Club <laughs> and you, you have? Yeah, no. Did you have paintings in the Tate? What I've definitely seen a picture of you, that you've done, did of a golden retriever.
6: It's true. It wasn't the Tate. If only it was the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. So yeah, I have had over the years. I've, I've been in that exhibition maybe four times, and they've always I've always managed to sell whatever it was that I had in. So yeah, but I don't make any claims for myself. I mean, I think you know actually talk about. Uh, Popularising art, I think Grayson's Art Club has done a fantastic job for that. You know, it, particularly, I mean, it took the lockdown probably to make people think and you know, to give people the time to actually get round to doing it. You know, there's a there's a big there's a weird kind of thing where, as kids, we all do art. You know, we all, if you put a crayon in a kid's hand, they'll start drawing. But we become, I don't know, just around kind of teenage years, you start becoming self conscious, and, and a lot of people, if you say to them, "Oh, draw me a picture of a," you know a fruit bowl or draw me what's what you can see out of your window they feel very self-conscious uh and embarrassed about about what they produce and what i'm kind of saying and i think grayson probably says the same is that it doesn't really matter what you produce it's about doing it it's just about doing it because there's an enormous amount of satisfaction uh, about immersing yourself in something other than what you do for a living
2: well, that's um, now uh, Harry. I need to talk to you about um, what else are we talk. We need let's talk about let's talk about Tony Blair. Can I ask you about Tony oh, Blair? Okay, I, yeah. I, great. I came to see the oh, Tony did you? Blair. Yeah, what Well, oh,
6: God, oh. God bless you. God bless you. You were lucky to get a ticket. It was weird. The first week we couldn't give tickets away, and then suddenly, uh, I don't know if it was word of mouth or. We had a couple of favourable reviews and suddenly it was like all my friends who, you know, I would say, oh, yeah, I've got this musical. Would you like to come? They were saying, oh, well, I've got something. Suddenly
2: they were all on the phone saying, any chance of a ticket? Um, well, I think it's all because we had Steve Brown, your co-conspirator yeah. in this. He came up, I think it was all because he came on Times Radio and then the tickets flew out the door. Explain why you <laughs> decided to write a musical about the life in times of Tony Blair. Because I have to say, I also saw the X Factor musical, which I loved, oh. um, which I'm aware was not a universal um, uh, reaction uh, back when it was at the London Well, no, Reagan. I think
6: actually... Well, it's funny because actually we got good reviews. You know, it it wasn't a critical flop in the way that it was a financial one. I think what it was, Matt, is that we found this perfect storm, which was there's one group of people who really like the X Factor and there's one group of people who really like musicals. But all the people that like the X Factor don't like musicals. People (laughs) that like musicals
2: don't like the X Factor. (laughs) It was just a really bad idea. (laughs) <laughs> Which you wouldn't have thought. On paper, you'd have thought, but they like people, people warbling away on stage. I
6: tell you, I tell you, Matt, when when I came up with the idea, and when Simon Cowell said, it's a, it's a yes for me, I thought I was going to be rich. I mean, I thought, you know, it was, if you think about X Factor in 2012, was like the biggest TV show. The tabloids were, every day there'd be another story. Uh, and it was on in 86 countries around the world. I thought this show could be simultaneously running in uh, New York, Hong Kong, Beijing, Moscow, Reykjavik, you know I mean? You started doing the maths as I, you know, as I started to. Um, But I, no, joking apart, I think basically no one has ever opened a new musical or even a new play at at the London Palladium. And I think everyone got slightly carried away with the whole kind of machismo and bravado of the whole... You know, um, Simon Cowell uh, circus. And if we'd opened, because we were selling enough tickets to sell out a medium sized theatre, if we'd opened in the Lyric Shasbury Avenue, it would have been sold out every night. You know, it was a weird. It was well, a I enjoyed weird it. Thing, I, it was, I,
2: I loved, part of me loved, I loved seeing it. sort of, because sometimes your, I haven't followed you for a long time now, your comedy is quite uh, um, bespoke, um, artisan. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, some of your, yeah, the props and things that, you know, they look like they could yeah. see that you've made them. So taking that mentality and then blowing huge sums yeah. of Simon Cowell's money on it and putting it on the biggest stage in London. Yeah, really I know. That appealed to my sense of uh, of the ridiculous.
6: Um, well, it appealed to mine. I mean, I you know, I was sort of actually all the way through that process. I was sort of laughing to myself thinking I can't actually. Well, I remember we came out of the meeting with Simon Cowell in his office in Kensington. Uh, and we and he'd said yes you know it's it's a yes from me we came out onto the street we looked at each other and we said "She yes, can have to do this now <laughs> you know we couldn't we couldn't actually believe <laughs> i basically came up with the idea drunk in front of watching the x factor final 2011 you know with uh when little mix lifted the the <laughs> lifted the prize so um yeah, no one was more surprised than
2: I. So then, uh, it's been, so it's been a while then for you to get over the the the, the um the, the what happened with the X Factor one. So then you chose. Well, Tony- no one would tell you. I tell you,
6: Matt, no one would touch us after that. No <laughs> one would touch us. Uh, we'd lost so much money. <laughs> no, no one would touch us, and I had the. I've had the idea for that. I wrote the original script for the Tony Blair thing about maybe six years ago. Uh, the opening night at the um, of the workshop, I went on to introduce the thing, and I said, you know, our first musical opened at the London Palladium, 2,400 seats. Uh, and as you know, the Park Theatre is 200 seats. Uh, you know, we are where we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was...
2: Uh, and what was it about? For people who don't know, was, what it was, was it metaphoric? about Tony Blair?
6: Well, it's just a great... It, you know, it's a great story. It's operatic, really, in its... Um, in its uh, arc, its story arc, you know, he starts off as a kind of peace-loving hippie, it's, he's in a rock band, he's got long hair, you know, he's singing in Ugly Rumours, he's obsessed with Mick Jagger, and then, you know, he becomes the most successful Labour Prime Minister of all time, he's swept to kind of, and literally swept to victory, you remember those scenes of people lining the streets, I mean, they may want well have been paid, I don't know, but there was a feeling of hope and you've got around that. You've got the millennium. You've got Britpop. You know, suddenly England is swinging once again. I mean, it was a. I know we all know it was a sort of Earthsat's version of the um, the sixties. You know, it was the Oasis rather than the Beatles. But um and then the whole thing just goes horribly wrong, and uh, and he becomes a kind of uh, international pariah. <laughs> Not quite. I mean, I'm exaggerating. You know, and we the stories is not the story we tell is not necessarily the true story, but it's a very entertaining one of where he became, you know, I kind of thought to myself, if I was to bump into Tony Blair in the street, would would you ask him for a selfie? You know, you probably wouldn't, would you? I mean, uh, and so that's, it's that thing, that's the story really. And the way he then goes off and, you know, basically has this huge property portfolio and, uh, is photographed with various uh, iffy people, shall we say, around the world. Um, so that's what attracted me to it. And, so I, what's, and I what's, think, what's
2: happening to the musical?
6: Well, you know, we ran it for five weeks there. So in many ways, that was enough for me to kind of exorcise the ghost of, uh, of um, the X Factor flop. And so although it was only five weeks in a 200 seater, I felt. Like It was a big success, actually. It was uh, The team we had, the cast were fantastic. And, you know, the audiences really, really loved it uh, every night. And we're now looking at, you know, transferring it somewhere else. I mean, all these things take a long time. Because of the lockdown, there's this huge bottleneck. It's, It's a bit boring, but there's this huge bottleneck of shows. There's too many shows, not enough venues, because there's two things. The shows that were delayed have had to come back, you know. So the shows that were off have then come back into the places they were in. Plus, you've got everyone who was locked down has <laughs> written a play. <laughs>
2: There's a double whammy. There's a double whammy. So, so it's a you... double whammy. If you've moved on from... The, you, you feel like you've exercised what happened with The X Factor 1, having done the Tony Blair one. Is there another political musical in you? Is there a Boris Johnson musical? Have you been closely watching... Liz I've got Truss an idea, not
6: Boris. Everyone says to me, what about Boris? I think it's too obvious. I don't know what you do with that. You know, it's almost beyond parody. I'm think I have got an idea for a musical. And if you if you like, I'll unpack it in front of Please your, do. Um, your listeners. Because uh, I'm not sure about this. It's about... Uh, Prince Charles and Camilla are, so they're king and queen and um, but they've fallen out with the rest of the family and so they hatch a plan to have a baby. So they t- bear with me, it's still there. It's still here, yeah. <laughs> I'm just writing it down. <laughs> so they, they hatch a plan to have a baby and you know how you can take these um, how the kind of age of fertility's been extended. They're like, I think the oldest lady to have a baby was 74. You know, you can take this course of Almost. So Camilla embarks on this course of, and um, basically they conceive a child. And the child is, when the child is born, it is basically like a cross between Mr. Blobby and uh, Mickey Mouse. It's a bizarre cartoon character. So it'll be someone. <laughs> right. Okay. And so there's this dilemma about, you know, it's basically technically now. Uh, and I think they, also the rest of the family had to get wiped out in a plane crash or something. But basically, it comes to um, it comes to the moment where basically this thing is uh, next to Knight of the throne. <laughs> but the thing is, the weird thing is, actually, the public really, really like this creature, uh, um, and uh, so it's sort of a comment about the nature of um, hereditary, uh, you know, uh, the monarchy, basically. The monarchy him. and
2: the hereditary. Yeah. About the point, doesn't a point what which just tips are. over to be almost being treasonous, I think. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Are they still taking people in the Tower of London? <laughs> um, yeah, that you... big, is that tr- maybe it is treason? Someone was I done think... for treason recently, wasn't they? There's arson in the naval, naval yacht, dockyard that you can get hanged for. <laughs> <laughs> you know more about these things than I do. That's, that, that
2: speaks the voice of experience. That speaks the voice. I head I'd... on a. My head on a pike outside uh, the Tower of London, yeah, on London Bridge. Th- I was thinking, when I knew you, you were coming on, I wanted to ask you, because I was thinking, this, this this thing with the Liz Trust, Rishi said I've been dragging on for so long. Oh, God, you know, yeah. and actually, in the good old days, when TV Burt was on, you'd have had an easy way to Fight. sort
4: this out, wouldn't you?
2: <laughs> I like this Trust, but well, I don't like this Trust, and I don't like Rishi
6: Sunak, but which is better, which is worse? There's only one way to find
2: out. Bye!
6: Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. You can get it done in an afternoon.
6: Well, there's a lot to be said. You know, sometimes words are not enough, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> You've never been tempted. i tell you what, you can't <laughs> the ratings. Imagine the ratings. Instead of uh, a live debate, just a live fight. Just, just a toss, fight. Stripped strip down to a leotard. Rishi Sunak
2: <laughs> in high-waisted shorts and a cape fighting. A very, it'd be very expensive shorts as well in cape. Yeah. Sort of gold-lined. Oh, yeah. You, you're not really. You, your lot. Of your company isn't really political. I mean, we spoke to your, no. your old mate Al Moe a few weeks ago, and obviously he's but well, he stood for Parliament. Well, uh, you, you've never I been know. touched by I that. think he,
6: I think he, uh, I think he took, a, he took a bit of a bruising in, in North. I think he forgot what the people of North Kent are actually like. You know, I'm, uh, I'm from Kent, so uh, I know, um, I know he had a bit of a rough time with that. But um, uh, yeah, well, Al, you know, yeah, I don't do, I don't do. Uh, political humour, so the Tony Blair thing, I mean, with the Tony Blair thing, as you know, seeing it, it was uh, kind of absurd, and I think we gave everyone uh, a hard time, and my own kind of attitude really is that they're all as bad as each other, if I'm honest, it's a little bit, um, I'm afraid I'm a bit cynical about, uh, I've never met a politician I liked,
2: I don't (laughs) No, you're right. Well, I mean, I expect, you know, you and about 68 million other other people. I suspect, um, have you. Uh, yeah, and Tony Blair, you know, Tony Blair's kind
6: of to blame, you know, this kind of cynicism towards politics. You know, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it came about partly just because of the way that, that his kind of reliance on spin. And I mean, I know it was always there, but it seemed more obviously. Yeah, and also, I suppose. That- Heavy handed.
2: And I have the interview, Tony, but I've asked about this, the fact that he came in on such a wave of everyone loving him and he was seemed like a great yeah. bloke and he drank tea out of a mug and he was normal. And mm. that sort of, the huge piece also young. what then contributes to the sort of the crash afterwards, whereas uh, yeah. up until that point, politicians were just sort of grey men in suits who... No well, that was
6: it. They're, you know, actually, we make that point, is that the, the reason... I mean, there have been plenty of, you know, uh, leaders worse than him, but uh, the reason that everyone is so... Um, you know, vitriolic about him, is that we had such hope for him. Yeah. Everyone was pinning so much on him, which was, you know, foolish, perhaps. Yeah,
2: it's a a sort of the ex-boyfriend thing, isn't it? Everyone sort of fell in love with him and then, uh, you know, Mm. really hate him afterwards. Not that I've ever had Mm. an ex-boyfriend, but I I can suspect. Uh, Harry Hill, it's been lovely to speak to you. What's your next thing? So we've done done art, we've done shows, we've done music, we've done comedy. What's what's, what's, what's next on the agenda for Harry Hill?
6: I'm going back to the old skill of stand-up comedy. So... uh, yeah I'm going on tour in the autumn all around the country I mean in London I'm doing Shepherd's Bush Empire I'm doing my warm-ups for the tour at Wilton's Music Hall oh, which nice. I think would be a great place to uh, to see me so do come along um because you know the lockdown it all stopped we weren't allowed to I mean I haven't toured for 10 years so I don't tour very often but w- once someone tells you you can't do it it made me want to do it
2: so <laughs> I'm back you're back and uh, harry it's been lovely to speak to you uh best of (laughs) luck with with all of it and i look forward to uh seeing that extraordinary (coughs) royal musical (laughs) got to come up with a name for it haven't we on the uh on the on the stage of the london palladium you'll be back it'll happen eventually (laughs) harry hill thank you so much for joining us on times radio cheers my pleasure that's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast, and if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.